We come now to the reading and preaching of God's Word in Acts chapter 15. If you'd like to follow along, you can do so. It's there in the bulletin, beginning on page 6. We don't have time to read the whole of that chapter, but I'll highlight certain things, and then we'll read the middle section. What happens here is there's conflict, a conflict arises by those commonly called Judaizers, which means that they are trying to assert, they are asserting, that Gentiles have to become full Jews in order to really have salvation. They have to be circumcised. They have to obey the law of Moses. And this means all the aspects of the law of Moses. So this was a critical, critical time in the church. And there, Paul and Barnabas are up in Antioch uh, on the coast north of Jerusalem. And the Judaizers come up there. There's a great dissension that occurs. It's very serious because that word is used in context of, uh, of, of rebellion in a city and those kinds of things. It's an intense uh, <laughs> discussion that they have there in Antioch, and it, it's so big, they think, we've got to take this to Jerusalem and talk to the apostles and elders. So this is the great council that occurs uh, in Jerusalem in chapter 15. And at that council, uh, Peter stands up and gives a history of what happened with him with the Gentiles, Paul and Barnabas. Then James stands up, he's kind of the recognized leader at this point, and he's the brother of Jesus, actually, but that's not why he's a leader, you know, Jesus' brother, so he's the leader. But he is just a, uh, a spiritual, godly leader that the church has recognized. Then he summarizes and gives us a speech summarizing the scripture's fulfillment in the uh, ministry to the Gentiles, and then they form a uh, announcement, a, a a kind of order or charge to all the churches of how we will move forward. Okay, so that's, that's what happens here. So we'll uh, pick it up in verse 6 as they gather in Jerusalem. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And it seems like the whole church was there to watch what was happening. The whole church gathered but the discussion was among the apostles and elders especially. Peter stood up after there had been much debate. So much debate could have been hours, you know, a lot and lot of talking and debating back and forth. So uh, basically Luke is summarizing the meeting, <clears throat> probably even summarizing what uh, the apostles said. But Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now he's talking about when he went to speak to Cornelius and his household and, and, and friends back in chapter 10. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, these Gentiles with Cornelius, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test 
by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. After much debate, there was quiet after Peter said this. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So they're giving the report of Paul's first missionary journey that we uh, looked at in chapters 13 and 14. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related, that's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name, Cornelius and company. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written, quoting from Amos, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who call by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read in every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers. And then you have the letter which basically states what... Uh, James has just said. So I hope you see what a, a, a critically important time this is for the church. And it raises uh, several important issues for us to consider uh, this morning. First of all, though we didn't read this section, uh, we have in verses 1 through 5 the challenge of the Judaizers. You can see in verse 1 what they said, unless you're circumcised, According to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then later in verse 5, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. These were, Luke tells us in verse 5, those of the Pharisees, the, the strict uh, section of uh, Judaism. And they are insisting, and of course they're doing this thinking that they're upholding God's word. They feel that the apostles are ignoring God's word because circumcision was required, and they even point out that they must keep the law of Moses. The, in, in other words, they must become Jews. And later, it's interesting in uh, when Paul, uh, or maybe it's before this, when Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia, 
uh, he mentions that some, at least, were doing this for fear of persecution. In other words, if you're among Jewish people and you're involved in bringing people to Christ, you suffer persecution from the Jews. But if you require circumcision and obedience to the law, then you're making proselytes who happen to believe in Jesus as well. And it may sound good, but it's deadly as the apostles believed, as Paul writes in Galatians uh, throughout that book. Now, here, the challenge of the Judaizers, and you'll see in the parenthesis that the meaning of the gospel in the church will be attacked. This is just 10 years after Peter spoke to Cornelius in, in chapter 10 and then reported it in chapter 11. Just 10 years later, and look at the conflict that's occurring in the church. Uh, according to one dating, Paul has already written the uh, letter to the Galatian churches. These were the churches he went to in his first missionary journey. These Judaizers have already gotten up to those churches, and Paul is having to write to those churches and saying, after such a short time, are you turning away from the gospel? Are you turning away from simplicity of trusting in Jesus Christ? And there, again, he's fighting this uh, requirement to be circumcised, to be conformed to Jewish law. And you will find in almost every letter these kinds of concerns. Not this particular concern, but just that the church is constantly attacked. You can't even name all the ones in Corinth, hardly, from division to Greek influence to problems in their views of sexuality, on and on. And Paul, writing in, to the Colossians, was dealing with some kind of folk Jewish heresy that was uh, dragging so many people away from Christ. Paul, when he has spent three years with the uh, people at Ephesus, is now speaking to the elders, and he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. John in 1 John writes about the Antichrist who teaches that Jesus has not come into the flesh. He says, many Antichrists are already here. And we always think, I wonder when the Antichrist is going to show up. And there 2,000 years ago, John says, the spirit of the Antichrist is here. He's already here, wreaking havoc, denying that Jesus has come in the flesh. Heresies dealt with in 2 Peter and Jude. In Timothy, heresies. In his final words in 2 Timothy 4 that, that we have from Paul that he wrote, he says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And in Revelation, you know that John addresses seven different churches in the West Turkey area. Uh, about all of their issues. And this, of course, has occurred all the way through the history of the church. It is everywhere around us now. We, can't, we won't go into it just because of time. 
And we constantly, the church will always be plagued with this. And issues and problems, whether not heresies, particularly in the PCA, but we have had multiple problems in our denomination since we were founded in 1973. Our own church has had our problems, right? It, it, it's, it's always going to be there. The point is what? The point is this. Never trust in a human being. <laughs> never trust in a human being. Human beings are fallible. Every human being is fallible. That doesn't mean that we can't have, you know, fundamental trust in each other and interdependence and all these kinds of things, of course. But ultimately, we only trust in Christ and we cling to him alone. And we pray for our leaders and for one another as those who are fallible and weak and must have the grace of God to ever be sustained, to do anything good. To ever be defended against division and heresy. None of it's automatic. It is only by the grace and power of God that we could ever be sustained as a people. So let us take from this and, and remember this is not unique uh, to them, never to the church or to us. We must trust him alone. Jeremiah 17 says that the, the one who trusts in mankind will be like a bush in the desert. The one who trusts in the Lord will be like a tree planted by streams of water. Let's be a church that trusts only in God and in no human being, ultimately. In this, then we have this report of the apostles uh, where the, the, we, we have in parenthesis the church recognizing the work of God in the world. <clears throat> I love how Peter puts that. God bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit. To Cornelius in them. This bore witness to them. I accept you as you are a Gentile. I fill you. I possess you. I own you. I accept you. I'm gracious toward you. I embrace you as you are. I love that. He bore witness to them. And then he says, just as he did to us. There's no difference. And don't you uh, recall, as Peter's speaking, he didn't expect this. He didn't know it was going to happen. He was speaking to Cornelius, and the Holy Spirit was just poured out right in front of him. It shocked him. It shocked all the Jews who were there. And they had to conclude, well, you know, it, it's comical, but we would have been the same way. You know, maybe God's accepting the Gentiles, you know. And, and he had to come back to convince the other Jews this because they were skeptical. They already were beginning to criticize this until they heard how God acted. See, this, act, this amounts... This, this pouring out of the Holy Spirit amounted to a public announcement by God that Gentiles do not have to become Jews to belong to God. And that's why he says later here, are we going to test God? Are we going to demand from them something God didn't demand of them? Testing means to doubt his goodness, to doubt his grace, like Israel did in the wilderness. Testing God's goodness. You're not going to take care of us. You're not going to provide us what we need. 
And here, here Paul aligns them with those Israelites saying, you're testing God. He longs to be gracious and is gracious, obviously, to the Gentiles as they are. These who we've counted as unclean, he says, they've been made clean. He says they were purified by faith. And I love how he puts it, just as we were. See his point? We aren't cleansed because we're Jews. We're not cleansed because we, we're the circumcised ones and they've got to get this circumcision. Even though in the Old Testament, circumcision was the sign of inner cleansing. But he says, no, they're, they're clean, they were cleansed by trusting in Jesus Christ just like we were. Jew and Gentile all must come together in Jesus Christ. We have no other way of being cleansed. And this, this is a, a striking way to put it, cleansed through faith. Because it's not primarily speaking about being forgiven, but it's talking about the cleansing of the life. The purification made clean and holy before God. It includes, of course, that acceptance and that uh, favor in Jesus Christ. But it means the beginning of the cleansing of our pride, the beginning of humility, the beginning of our fear being struck down and our self-assertion and our anger, at least the root, which is the love of God in Christ, is put there deep in our hearts to begin to displace all of these things. The beginning of the cleansing of our lives through faith, through trusting in his goodness and it is for us as we are sinful people as we are and he says of course we cannot be testing God standing uh, against God's purpose we are saved by grace alone and here was the danger that you, you can see in, in the way Peter says this you are implying that the grace of Christ, the faith in Jesus, his work is not enough. It didn't finish. It got us some way there, but we've got to add the rest of the way there. And that is dangerous. That has always undermined the church, ultimately, uh, those who would go that path because we begin to build our own resume and establish our righteousness before God on our own and not through grace. So, as I heard it years ago say, uh, don't put a comma where grace puts a period, right? By faith in Christ alone, period. Not comma. And you need to, but, 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 to get you the rest of the way. Then, we have this amazing uh, quotation, this amazing treatment of this passage in Amos and probably some of Isaiah brought in here as well. Um, and I say here, the church must always appeal to the promises of God and apply them in their present situation. Uh, how true for us constantly to apply his promises. But it's amazing that he takes this passage which is so particularly Jewish, 
because it talks about the tent of David, which would refer to you know, the tabernacle, ultimately the temple, ultimately the kingdom, uh, the house of David being restored. What could be more Jewish than the house of David, you know? And yet, how is the house of David fulfilled? How is it rebuilt? And he says it's rebuilt actually in the midst. It even seems because of, but at least in connect, vital connection with the ministry to the Gentiles and the ingathering of the Gentiles. The building of David's tent in part is the Gentiles being brought to Christ as Gentiles. Now, there are parts of the American church that beginning in the 19th century and throughout this century, it's thankfully growing less and less, had the view that the church wasn't even mentioned in the Old Testament because they wanted to keep everything to the Jews separate from everything to the church, that the church was even a parenthesis in God's thinking, plan B, and even that the Jews and the uh, Gentiles would end up in different places in eternity. That's the old form of dispensationalism. But we have here James saying, here is the fulfillment. The ministry that includes Jew and Gentile in one church, this is the great fulfillment of the promises that God will build his people. How glorious that we then, by his grace, are called his people. We, Paul says in Philippians, are the circumcision. Those outside of Christ who happen to be circumcised, he says, they are only mutilated now. It's a striking, graphic image. But he's making a spiritual point that to be outside of Christ no matter what all you may do as a Jewish person or any other religion in obeying, it means nothing except our union belonging to Jesus Christ. And if we belong to Jesus Christ, circumcised or not, we are the spiritual circumcision. He actually calls the church in Galatians 6 the Israel of God. And the promise is spoken to Israel in uh, in, in, first, in, in Exodus uh, are, are fulfilled and, and, and Peter speaks them to the church in 1 Peter 2. And brothers and sisters, this means that all people who trust in Christ are your brothers and sisters. Whatever their race, whatever their color, whatever their social standing, they're your brothers and sisters Owned by God, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, speaking about Jew and Gentile. And this, if that rift is, is uh, healed, then all rifts are healed before his throne. He says, the Holy Spirit has us all before the Father as one people. We are emphatically, emphatically must embrace all people's and I hope and pray that that will be more and more reflected in our actual fellowship as well. Because if we take a five-mile radius and ask who all is in that five miles, I would love to see it beautifully, wonderfully represented here in this body. May God grant it. Then 
we'll just touch on this letter that they write. I want to point out this, that the letter could have gone out and said, forget it, don't even consider anybody Jewish around you, Uh, but it doesn't. It really centers around the idea of uh, idolatry and and of uh, public uh, idolatry and, and everything it was connected to. But it has, of course, legitimate things that anyone would be concerned about, like sexual immorality, but it has the uh, strangling, the, the blood issue, right? That's a particularly Jewish issue. It's not something that is upheld as part of the morality of the New Testament. But he says, steer away from that. Why does he do that? Be sensitive to your Jewish brothers. Don't be offensive to them. That those that would think that that's very important. Don't, don't on purpose offend. Because he says, everywhere you go, the synagogue, there's a synagogue and, and Moses is read. Don't be particularly offensive. So even in this letter that's guarding the gospel so carefully, it's also guarding the unity of the church and the love and humility that we must have toward one another to be concerned about how we are dealing with one another. So this, uh, this chapter really, uh, they call it a kind of watershed, almost a centerpiece of Acts. Uh, so much turns on this chapter as we have had this initial foray into the Gentiles, chapter 10 through 14, and then this declaration, and now Paul's second and third missionary journeys after this. May God bless us as we seek to apply these things in our situation uh, by his grace. Let's pray. Oh, Father, uh, bless us. Open up our eyes that we, Lord, may as well uh, trust only in your grace hold fast to your truth humbly hold to it recognizing that we ourselves are just as apt to error as anyone else may we all cling with humility constantly asking your Holy Spirit to bless us and guard us and teach us for we are weak and oh Lord may we recognize that Only you can guard us. Only you can keep us. May we trust in no human being, but only in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, O Lord, we pray that we will always uphold faithfully that we are saved by grace alone, not adding anything, not bringing anything to the table, but only trusting in Jesus Christ and embracing one another as brothers and sisters in Christ being humble before one another and being always concerned about the needs and the, and the views and, and the preferences even, and Lord, the sensitivities that we have even in our own body. Oh, bless us, Lord, that we will honor you with the gospel and honor one another in our love in Jesus Christ. These things we pray in his name. Amen.